Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Dana Perkins, and you're listening to Switched On, the BNEF podcast. On last week's episode, we discussed aluminum, and this week, we're looking at another important metal, steel. The sectors with harder-to-abate emissions by 2050 include things like cement, plastics, trucking, shipping, and aviation, and of course, the subject of today's show, steel. It's produced with the world's most commonly mined metal ore, iron, and has extensive uses, whether these be construction, automotive, household appliances, or the renewable energy equipment that is essential for the path to net zero. For BNF subscribers, relevant research on the steel industry can be found on the Decarbonizing Industry series page. This is on BNF.com or NEFW Go for those who have a terminal. Hover over Research and News, then go to Series, and then find Decarbonizing Industry. We drew upon a few specific research notes, such as net zero needs set to boost metals demand nearly fivefold, and Asian steel giants spread bets on hydrogen, along with a number of company profiles. And on the show today, we're going to talk about some of the major steel manufacturers and how they're approaching decarbonization. I speak with BNEF's head of sustainable materials, Dr. Julia Atwood, and our sustainable materials analyst in Bloomberg's Beijing office, Yu Chen Tang. Together, we go through the range of different production methods and innovations that steel producers are using to reduce their emissions, including recycling. We also discuss the EU Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, or CBAM for short, and how it's impacting global manufacturers' emissions targets. And lastly, we get to whether or not nuclear power could play a big role in the decarbonization of this sector. As always, if you like this podcast, make sure to subscribe to receive updates on future episodes and give us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to increase our discoverability. Now, let's jump into my conversation with Julia Nguyen about steel. Yuchen, thank you for joining us on the show today. Thank you, Dana, for having me. And Julia, welcome back. Thanks, Dana. Nice to be here. So we're going to talk about steel decarbonization, which fits into the hard-to-abate category, the things that are really difficult to figure out how we're going to decarbonize. And as we're getting started, let's give it a little bit of context. How big are the emissions? What are we talking about in terms of scope? Well, steel is about 7 to 8% of global emissions, depending on how you count them. But the really interesting thing is that in economies that are trying to decarbonize, it's often a much bigger slice of that. So in China and Japan and Korea, it's actually in the teens. So steel decarbonization is an outsized topic for those countries because they know that in order to keep this critical material, they're going to have to make it green. Now, you're saying they're going to have to make it green. And then that leads me to the question, why is it hard to abate? Yeah, steel is particularly hard to abate because it uses coal intensively. And it's hard to get rid of those coal because not only are they used as fuel, but also they're used for their chemical properties. So in fact, they're used in blast furnaces as reducing agent to bring the iron ore to turn them into iron, essentially. So 
there's really no good substitute for those coal and coke used in blast furnaces. And blast furnace using that process to make iron actually accounts for about 70% of total steel production in the world. And you had previously said that there were a few main centers in the world where steel is produced and it's a big part of their exported economy. And so I guess my question is also, why is it produced there and why is this not something that is part of this global deglobalization as we think about supply chains, which keeps propping up this year? Why is it in so few centers? So actually... Around half of uh, steel, crude steel, is actually made in China, and most of the steel, actually about ninety-five percent of steel made there in China, is consumed domestically. So it supports industries like the property industry. It supports the infrastructure built in China. So as you can see, because we have such concentrated demand from China, that's why we have like like a large chunk of steel produced there. So following China, we have India, which is currently the second largest steel producing country in the world,、It、accounts for about four percent of total steel production, and followed by South Korea,、uh, U.S. and Japan, which roughly produces. Yeah, around the same share of steel. So I mean, China is, as Julian mentioned, China is pretty outsized in its steel production. But steel as a material has been used extensively to help those developed economies basically urbanize in the past. And now it's really the emerging economies such as China and India driving those steel demands. So we'll soon see those. Steel production shifting increasingly to meet those demand from those emerging economies, in particular. That was a really good summary. The way to think about it is just that steel follows industrialization. You have to have steel in order to build cars and houses and roads and bridges. And we've typically only had one enormous country industrializing at a time. So we had China, and now it's moving into India and Southeast Asia. So I think you will see some shifts in where steel is produced in the pretty near future. And we certainly spend a lot of time talking about mitigation, but steel has an important role to play in adaptation when people are thinking about making more resilient infrastructure. So, is the demand for steel, in theory, increasing, staying flat, decreasing? What's our forward-looking view, not just on decarbonizing steel, which we will come to, but whether or not it'll remain the critical material that it is today? Well, Julia, since you worked on the new industry which contains our demand outlook, I'll let you take that question. That was a masterful plug. Thank you, Chen.、Um, it depends on the country. So, incredibly, we actually see steel production going down in China, which would have been unthinkable ten or twenty years ago. Overall, we think it will ramp up, and that's because of a lot of growth in India, a lot of growth in Southeast Asia. Everybody else kind of stays the same because we really think of them as being in replacement cycles. So you only need as much steel as you need to replace anything that you're tearing down because the building's too old. The point about adaptation is really interesting. Obviously, for adaptation, there's a lot of reinforcing of existing infrastructure. That you would want to do, and construction is the biggest source of demand for both steel and cement. And cement, which we're going to be looking at soon, is a very similar portion of global emissions. So we've talked internally about adaptation being difficult because your problems just pile one on top of each other. And so a lot of buildout of adaptation infrastructure is going to mean more cement, more steel. More emissions, so that just makes it even more important that the steel makers start to look at how they can get to net zero. 
Do they currently have the technologies that they need? Or is this a conversation that still continues to kind of, let's say, lean on hydrogen? Our team dived into the possible net zero technologies to make steel. So hydrogen, as you mentioned, Dana, is a big one of them. So currently, I think with the technology readiness level, we're somewhere, we're very close to commercializing this technology. So we'll see the leading steel makers putting out the first projects using green hydrogen around 2025, 2026. And obviously, there are some other technology, for instance, retrofitting the emissions intensive blast furnaces with CCUS and also substituting um, some of the coal potentially with biomass and their emerging technologies such as electrolysis that can also help us make green steel. However, those other technologies are at a much less mature level compared to hydrogen. So in Europe in particular, hydrogen is the go-to option to help steel decarbonize. What is the state of the race to net zero by steel producers? And and what I mean by that is, you know, I look sometimes at industries and I see net zero targets really come in waves. It's typically not one or two companies. It's either most of them or very few of them. Is this something that is a big push in the steel industry? And are they all racing towards a net zero future? And, and perhaps what do the targets look like? Well, I wouldn't say they're as eager as racing, but there are certainly some big players out there putting out their net zero targets. So actually, very recently, we've looked into some of the largest integrated steel makers. So those predominantly reliant on blast furnace production to make their steel right now. So we look at uh, where they are in terms of um, net zero target setting, which actually converges mostly on 2050. So that's like the common goal that they set. We also look at what are the technologies that they're planning on adopting to achieve those targets and what are some of the projects that they put out there. So but amongst those uh, top eight integrated steelmakers we look at, there's actually one interesting outlier, which is SSAB. So it's the smallest amongst the A's that we look at, but it has the most ambitious target, planning to achieve net zero by 2030, which is really impressive or really unusual for such an hard-to-bait sector. Now, legislation certainly has a motivating force for companies. And I'm thinking about right now um, EU legislation. So the EU carbon border adjustment mechanism. How is this impacting the steel industry? Well, CBAM really started the conversation for a lot of people. It has an extremely long implementation time. So we don't think we're really going to see the full effects of the carbon price and this tariff until the 2030s. We hope that everyone will have made a lot of progress by then. So I would say what this is doing is putting everyone on notice. Every other country that imports to Europe now has to either find a way to produce a green product to sell specifically into that market or needs to start figuring out another place to send their steel. Yuchen, did you want to comment on the China dynamics? We talk a lot about how, oh, China is the biggest steel maker. This is going to be huge for them. But actually, you were the first person to give a very different spin on it to me. So as Julia mentioned, CBAM certainly has raised a lot of attention outside of the EU. So actually, China is not the biggest exporter of, of steel to Europe. 
but certainly had the CBAM caught a lot of attention in there. People, well, particularly the industry, is very eager to understand how CBAM works, what are the methodologies, which we yet have very little, little details on in terms of how producers are going to have to pay the carbon fees into the EU. But we will be expecting more details coming through leading till 2026. But um, this certainly is a great example of how a piece of legislation in the EU could have such large ripple effect to the rest of the world. So, I mean, China, like other countries, they're very concerned about the impact of this piece of legislation. I'm generally pretty down on policy when it comes to industrial decarbonization. I think it hasn't really pulled its weight so far. It's been giving industry a pass. But that said, something interesting that could come out of CBAM is a framework for standards for green steel. So most of the green steel that's bought and sold today, it's B2B. And those businesses have to spend a lot of time figuring out what do I think is green steel? What are my emissions criteria? How far down the supply chain am I going to go? If the EU sets up a really nice framework for this is how you report your emissions, these are what we think our standards are, that's a great jumping off point for the people who are trying to develop green standards that can be used throughout the industry. And then that sort of starts to lead you into thinking about this as a real product rather than something that a producer is doing to make their consumer happy. And speaking of a space that some may think is a hall pass and others may think is a tangible way to working towards net zero emissions right now, voluntary carbon. Are the steel producers looking at voluntary carbon offsets and are they big buyers of them at this moment in time? They're not big buyers of them. They're looking at everything. So they are looking at voluntary carbon offsets. I occasionally get questions about direct air capture. So is this something that they should consider doing? Should they just run their assets into the ground, do direct air capture as they need to in order to make a green product, or even just wait until it's hopefully less expensive in 2050? That's kind of a dangerous strategy because this is one of those things where it's relatively straightforward to actually measure the emissions because these are centralized plants. So I think a product that is called green steel based on offsets is not going to be able to command a premium for very long. And I just want to also provide some context to how steelmakers think about offsets. So currently, actually in steel production, the carbon element is an intrinsic part to steel. So actually steel is made up of about 2% of carbon. So physically, you actually need that carbon to be added in the steel production process. So for instance, even though you are using 100% of hydrogen, say so green hydrogen to make that steel, at some point, you will have to add in some carbon content, be it biomass or say if you add in some sort of fossil fuel and then capture the emissions later. So the point being, there will be some carbon or carbon emissions left. It's almost unavoidable in like how steel is made. So that's why a lot of the steel makers believe that at some point they're going to have to rely on carbon offsets or some sort of offsetting mechanism to help them reduce or tackle that residual emissions, which is approximately 5 to 10% of their emissions. However, I feel like the focus of the steel makers now in terms of decarbonization is that they want to look for technologies that will enable them to take the largest chunk of the emissions. So residual emissions 
important to get us to net zero. However, it is the smaller parts of the pie that we're looking at. So rather, they're looking for really deep decarbonization technologies such as hydrogen and CCUS, which allows you to abate the emissions to a larger extent. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Now, Julia, you've spent a lot of time at BNF thinking about circular economy solutions. And what I'm wondering is how much is recycling of steel a part of the solution for decarbonizing the overall output? Oh, it's definitely a big part. Most of the green steel that is sold today is recycled steel. It's going to be really important in these developing economies that are ramping up their steel production because they will also start to see the first cars, the first consumer goods, the first buildings that they built 50 years ago coming out of commission. So that's going to generate some scrap that they can then recycle into steel. The issue is there isn't a huge amount of upside here. When you look at something like plastics that's very badly recycled today, there's a huge amount of benefit that you can get from recycling them, both on the waste and the emission side if you do it mechanically. For steel, the developed world recycles steel very well. And so there's not a huge amount of benefit that they're going to get emissions wise for that. But you can, I mean, you can tell us a little bit about the plans that steelmakers have for recycling. Thanks, Julia. And Dana, you raised the really important point that recycling is going to play a big role in terms of reducing immediate or short to medium term. It's almost the most important solution because it is the only mature commercially available technologies that we have to make green steel. So how the method works is essentially you use scrap as feedstocks. You put it in the electric arc furnace, also known as EF, and then you plug in essentially low carbon renewables or some form of low carbon electricity into it and then magically you get your green steel so one way or another those eight steel makers that we've studied plan to install such recycling capacity to help them to enable them to make green steel in the medium to short term leading to 2030 so it's an important part to help them achieve their interim targets However, as Julia mentioned, yeah, it's not every solution. We need also other technologies to really help us get to net zero. 
Staying on the topic of technologies, you know, we talked about some of the things that were currently being looked at. So you talked about hydrogen and carbon capture. What are some of the more experimental things that are being looked at at the moment from a technology standpoint? And is there, you know, a bleeding edge when it comes to innovation in the steel space? Yeah, so I want to maybe discuss two interesting technologies. One is actually one category of technologies that allows the existing integrated steel making process to partially reduce emissions. And these category technologies, we call them blast furnace based technologies. So they could be top gas recycling coupled with CCUS, so or carbon capture. So that essentially means that you're recycling the off gas from the emissions intensive furnaces such as blast furnace or basic oxygen furnace where you make steel. So you recycle those off gases that contains carbon and then you feed them back into the furnace so that you require less carbon to be fed into the blast furnace in the first place to serve as a reducing agent and that can partially help you lower the emissions. Now, why this is important is because it's one important category that a lot of the Asian steelmakers are focusing on. So let's break the Asian steelmakers into a few categories. There's the Japanese steelmakers. So they are really the ones leading the steelmaking technologies currently in the world. So they have, they are super fascinated with their blast furnaces and they're looking to preserve that edge in the industry. So certainly they don't want the blast furnaces to go away. So they would try to find technologies that could help blast furnaces to reduce emissions. So the top gas recycling and carbon capture is one way. Another way is to inject hydrogen into the blast furnace that will also allow you to reduce emissions by around 20%. And then there's also another category of the steelmaker or Asian steelmakers is the Chinese ones. They are certainly also looking at blast furnace based technologies because their blast furnaces were very much built in the past 10 years, 20 years. So the asset life for these assets are very young. So these steel producers are still hoping to use them for a long time. So it doesn't really make sense to knock down those furnaces that are still quite young, still quite good, and to build new furnaces running on hydrogen. So it makes more economic sense for them to preserve that. And hence, inherently, they have the motivation to also figure out a way to reduce blast furnace emissions. It all comes back to hydrogen and CCS in the end, though. <laughs> One of the strategies you end up seeing from some really large companies is to wait for smaller companies, slightly more innovative, maybe nimble startups to really come up with a technology and then buy it then. Is there a vibrant space of companies that are looking at innovating that aren't a part of these very large steel producers in these centers around the world? There is, but they have a very particular niche. They all want to try and make steel directly with electricity. So using hydrogen is basically just a convenient storage tool and transport unit for electricity. But Yuchen has looked into this in a lot more detail. 
So we've certainly noticed a few startups in the space that are claiming that they have this innovative technologies that doesn't rely on either hydrogen or CCUS, but allows you to make green iron or green steel. One example being Boston Metals. So they have their proprietary process, which is known as molten oxide electrolysis or MOE, which is a high temperature process. You essentially pass a current into A, a chunk of molten iron ore, and by the electricity will reduce those iron ion and bring them and turn them into a molten iron. So another startup in this space, a few others actually. Um, there's another startup called Electra. So they're also developing an electrolysis-based process. However, it's a low temperature electrolysis process. And interestingly, contrary to the ME process from Boston Metals. Allows you to use intermittent renewables. So MOE relies on 24/7 clean power. That means you're gonna have to find some kind of storage or like really nice renewable to allow you to produce green iron continuously. However, for Electra's process, you actually can ramp up and down your production very flexibly. So in some way, or according to the company, actually, they claim that their production site could also potentially serve as a grid balancing facility for the local grid. Could it, in theory, You're, I mean, you mentioned grid balancing, so I guess this is the other side of the same coin. But it could be quite then responsive to the intermittency issues that we talk about when we think about wind and solar. Potentially, it could be. However, I must mention that their technology is still at a very early stage. So they've filed a patent a few years ago, and now they're currently looking to build a pilot-scale production plant by end of this year. However, I guess one challenge that this electrolysis-based technology is facing is scale. So it can allow you to produce almost as much as, say, currently the scale that they're looking at is they produce these iron plates that are one meter squared, and that is actually very, very tiny compared to what a blast furnace could do. And that's at million tons of scale. So it's an order of magnitude. Of difference, however, it does shine light on, as you mentioned, Dana, the problem of could it potentially、uh, help address this、uh, renewable intermittency issue? That's one potential. However, the scale at which they produce right now is still quite small, I have to say. Even though they have this potential, maybe we'll have to wait and see how it could actually tap the problem. But I want to mention another thing that this technology helps address is that, in fact, one common pushback that the hydrogen-based steelmaking technology is getting is that it requires a higher quality, a higher grade iron ore, which isn't commonly used、uh, in today's production. And those higher quality ore are also more expensive, and they're in lower supply. However, Electra's process, amongst some of the other electrolysis-based technologies, will allow you to use lower quality grade of iron ore. So we can continue to use the iron ore that we use today instead of having to worry about searching for higher quality reserves that could be in potential supply shortage. A technology which has been around for a while, but is certainly under discussion more than I have seen since I've been in this industry, is nuclear. Whether or not we we put it in the clean category, we will leave for a debate in another day. Has there been much conversation by steel producers 
to look to what is a really substantial source of baseload power. Is nuclear something that they are looking at more intensively right now? Yes, definitely. There are a lot of interests from the industries that we're beginning to observe. So, for instance, in North America, the largest steelmaker, Nuker, which, funny enough, its name actually suggests that it used to be a nuclear company, Nuker. It recently just invested in a nuclear power company called NuScale. So these North American steelmakers, which largely rely on EVs, and hence would be looking to source a lot of low carbon power, they're certainly interested in the potential of nuclear. We have seen similar interest arising from the Scandinavian regions. So I think Fortum,、uh, which is a Finnish energy supplier, and they have some nuclear power. They have signed some power supply agreement to supply nuclear power to. Also, interestingly, a startup in the region called H2 Green Steel, and the interest in nuclear is also very present in China, which might be not so well known outside of the country. So, the largest steelmaker in China and in the world, Baowu, is actually looking at nuclear's potential to make low-carbon hydrogen as well as providing low-carbon power for its hydrogen-based steelmaking pilot projects in the province of Guangdong in southern China. So there certainly is innovation, and there are, as you stated, net zero targets in the steel industry. But it really brings to heart that meaning of transition—that this is a long-term transition with targets quite far out and into the future, for good reason. While we are looking to very quickly decarbonize, and really are aware of the fact that the actions that we have right now are so impactful in terms of overall net emissions and how one might actually achieve net zero, much less a one point. Five degree scenario. What other alternatives to steel? What's their competitor out there that might reduce demand? Well, steel and aluminum have always been rivals in terms of where you're going to use them and the benefits of each. Now, aluminum, depending on where you make it, can have a massive carbon footprint, much higher even than fossil produced steel. So you have to be careful with your aluminum. We've also seen a real resurgence in interest in wood as a building material because that construction industry is such a huge portion of demand for steel. So people are experimenting with how tall can I make a wood building? How do I have to set up the building codes for that? How would I have to change my design? Would it have to be like squattier? Can we not have huge skyscrapers anymore? That's a little tough because nobody wants to use their building as a pilot project. So I think it will proceed quite slowly. I don't think steel demand overall is going to go anywhere. I think it can be replaced on the edges, but I think it's here to stay. I'm glad you brought up aluminum because we actually also recorded a show on decarbonizing aluminum, as that is also hard to abate. So as we go from one hard to abate sector to the next, thank you very much for joining today, Julia Newchen. Thanks, thank Dana. You, Dana. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as, investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording. 
and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.